program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Happy ADA 25. We have been doing this all month. Actually, I've been talking about it all year, and here we are. Here we are. July 26th, the 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA. And I am here in Washington, D.C. Wow, this is like a week of celebration and a great week it has been. And I am so excited that this week, the very week we've been celebrating here in D.C., that I would have as our guest someone so known nationally, actually, many places internationally in the disability community, someone that has really fought the fight since I've known him, and so before that, for people with disabilities, um, brilliant, wonderful, compassion, and a close friend that I am so lucky to have. Andy Imperato, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. It's, it's great to be back with you, and I'm really honored that you asked me to come on on ADA week because I know uh, this is our our moment in the sun. It is our moment in the sun. And before I start with Andy, I just want to uh, remind you, I know many of you knew Andy also when he was the CEO of AAPD and then, of course, working with uh, Senator Harkin. Uh, But he is now the executive director of the Association of University Centers on disabilities, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. Uh, but Andy, just as you said, this is the week we've been celebrating. First, I saw you at the White House, and now last evening, I see you at this great AAPD, Nickel, Every Disability Group uh, collaborated celebration, which was just fantastic. Um, and I wanted to first ask you, about the uh, reception at the White House. What did you think about that, and what sort of stood out in your mind when the president was speaking? Well, thank you, Joyce. I mean, I was very honored to be able to come. And, uh, you know, normally, Joyce, as you all know, when we get invited to the White House, we often are not given an opportunity to bring a guest. So (laughs) it was even nicer to to be able to bring my wife, Betsy, and uh, see everybody else, like Marka, was able to bring her son. Um, and it really felt like a family reunion, you know. I mean, we, we had people that had worked on the ADA, you know, in the 1980s. We had people that had come along, like me, afterward and had benefited from the law and worked together on the ADA Amendments Act in 2008. And, you know, we had people bringing their spouses, bringing their parents, bringing their children, and it was just a wonderful event. They opened up the White House to us. We were able to walk around, sit on the furniture, take pictures in front of Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton and whoever you know your your hero might be. 
And then the president came in, and you know he was in a good mood. He was relaxed. He was, his remarks were very personal. Um, he spent a lot of time talking to people, as did the vice president. Um, so I just think, I mean, I've been in Washington, Joyce, for 22 years, and that event was a real highlight for me, just in terms of you know the, the, who was in the room, and uh, you know the the occasion that we were celebrating. And, you know, how, how comfortable the President of the United States was being part of the celebration with the community. Oh, it was. It was. It was wonderful. And it was, as you said, something I will always remember. Um, and, and just everyone that was there, you know, people that participated from the very beginning, you know, leaders, uh, people like Steny Hoyer, Tony Coelho, uh, Senator Harkin, uh, Bob Dole, Senator Dole was there. Uh, of course, the Secretary of Labor. I'm not going to remember everyone, but it was just uh, wonderful. Then seeing people like you, Pat Wright, Judy Human, Becky, uh, you, you know, it was just a really, really special time. And I think it was great that members of the community, as you said, got to go uh a lot of times it's not in the East Room of the White House. And for everyone to be there, wow, that was really, that was really something. And then, of course, I see you again last evening at this spectacular event. What did you think about that? Well, again, I mean, it had the feel of a reunion. I mean, the Nickel Conference is always one of my favorite times of the year in D.C. because so many people are in town, literally from all over the country, um, and, you know, these are folks who are doing the work every day on the ground uh, in states and in communities around the country. And then you add, you know, the leadership from the National Federation of the Blind, the leadership from the deaf community, the psychiatric survivor leadership, you know, the folks with intellectual disabilities that were there, the family leaders that were there. You know, I mean, it was, it was a real cross-disability celebration and I really feel, Joyce, there's nothing that unifies our movement as much as the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I think it's very important when we have these milestone anniversaries that we all come together and reaffirm the value of all of us working together uh, to try to advance our civil and human rights. Yes, because that's really the only way we can get anything accomplished is when we work together, and, and you're right, Andy, that event, the ADA, thinking about the signing, President Bush, Justin, Justin Dart, just everything about it reminds you of how important it was when all the groups came together to get this bill signed and how powerful it would be if it would continue that way. So I, I think that's really a very good point. Now, you have done so much. You've been an advisor at EEOC, general counsel at the National Council on Disability, which is, by the way, when I met you, when I was on the President's Committee, yep. uh, you were with the National Council on Disability, CEO of AAPD, policy director for the Senate uh, Help Committee with Senator Harkin, even now as we're speaking, so you know, uh, Tony, I mean, uh, Tony, Andy just did a uh, press conference on the Hill, and uh, as Tony Quello frequently said, is strike zone in the policy area. 
And now you're the executive director of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. Now, you've had to see so much change from when you started, but what are some of the things that you feel have had the biggest impact on you throughout your career in reference to your disability? Well, Joyce, you know, I, I came to Washington in 1993, you know, which was at, near the beginning of the Clinton administration, and I came to work for Bobby Silverstein as the staff director of the Subcommittee on Disability Policy and Senator Harkin as the chair of that subcommittee. So I think in terms of one of the important impacts, just being able to work with the two of them early in my career and meet all the wonderful people who came into that office. You know, that's when I met Pat Wright. That's when I met Justin Dart. That's when I met Tony Coelho um, and so many, you know, great leaders, Ed Roberts, Elizabeth Boggs. I mean, we had all kinds of leaders coming through that office. Um, So I really felt like it was a great vantage point. I remember the first time I went to the White House, we were in the Indian Treaty Room for a Health Security Act briefing, and I was sitting next to Bobby, and Justin Dart rolled into the room, and Bobby introduced me to him, and Justin looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and said, you're in a good place. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I, I really feel like that was a wonderful way to start my career in Washington. One of the things that I give Bobby credit for. Um, As you know, Joyce, Washington is sometimes not good at prioritizing uh, families. You know, people tend to be workaholics. And it was very helpful for me to work for Bobby, who had two boys. I had my first son a month after I came to D.C. And Bobby always prioritized his sons and always encouraged me to go home and have dinner with my son and be a good father. So, that also had a big impact on me, just being able to, to witness that early in my career here in D.C. But I would say the leader who, who had the greatest impact on me was Justin, just being around him. Well, the thing about Justin that I think made him such an extraordinary leader for our movement was his ability to genuinely make everybody feel important, make everybody see that they had a role to play and that their role was important, and make everybody feel loved. You know, And he could do that for a Republican senator, a Democratic senator, uh, you know, somebody that was very junior. Uh, It didn't matter what your position was. When you were with Justin, you felt important and you felt loved. And I just think that quality is something that um, we can all try to emulate, but it's not easy to do. No, it isn't. And, you know, sadly, I met Justin and knew Justin, but it it wasn't long that I got to know him before he had passed away, maybe only a year, and uh, and he did so impress me, and still to this day, now I've become very close to Yoshiko, uh, whom I love so much, and she also has that uh, just goodness, that's the word I would use, goodness about her, but, you know, that is really... Amazing how Justin just was like love. I mean, he just had everyone that you meet, no matter who they are, they have this feeling about him. You know, it could be someone in the grassroots. It could be, you know, uh, a a disability policy leader such as yourself. It could be a president. It can be a senator. It can be someone in the business world that got involved, like myself. No matter who it is, he had that same impact on people. Well, and I, Joyce, I'll just tell one story, you know, that relates to how Justin and Yoshiko 
interacted with the community. When I was working for Paul Miller at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, I have bipolar disorder, as you know, and I've been out with it. And, you know, I went through long periods while I was working there where I was depressed. And I would get these handwritten notes from Justin thanking me for my leadership, you know, thanking me for, you know, being such an important part of the movement. And as somebody who was sitting there in a cubicle in the EEOC feeling depressed, to get a handwritten note from somebody of the stature of Justin Dart, it was a huge antidepressant for me, and I would put it up in my cubicle, and it would make me feel important. Wow, isn't that something? I bet you saved all those. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, anything that Yoshiko has sent me, or or right when, before he passed away, when they had sent me something, you know, it, it's some. It is really amazing how people have saved even tiny things. Uh, that just shows you the impact, you know, that he has had. Well, you know, Andy, I live with epilepsy. You live with bipolar disorder. But before I ask you this next question, I have to tell you something that, you know, I'm going to write an article about this or a blog. Sometimes I think we're in a bubble. I mean, those of us in the disability community, because sometimes I think that we don't realize maybe how far we still need to go. I mean, of course, I know because I know how hard it is to get jobs for people with disabilities. But just in the past week, first there was a CEO of a company and he had a child that is now middle-aged living with epilepsy, uh, very prominent, very wealthy family, but only I was to know that. Actually, he didn't tell me. People in the epilepsy community, because I had to speak, said, this is a situation, but whatever you do, don't let anyone know that because she doesn't want anyone to know. Then I meet this mother that said, my daughter is in college. Oh, I wish she would have come to meet you. But she... Now, this, this next thing was at an epilepsy walk, the story I'm telling you right now. But she did not want to come because... Well, you know, she didn't want anyone to know she has epilepsy. Okay, so in the first case of a middle-aged child, here's a person in college. Um, I get Sometimes I just forget. Like this morning at the hotel, I'm talking to this woman who's telling me how she met this blind person and can't believe the things this person can do. I mean, do you ever wonder that if, like, sometimes we don't realize all that? If we don't realize what, say, say more, Joyce. What, you, what do you mean? How bad? How how we still have so far to go? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, it's it's funny, Joyce. Every time we celebrate a milestone anniversary, it's very hard to get the tone right because, on the one hand, we've made incredible progress. The law is a unifying, wonderful thing that that you know brings us together as a community. But on the other hand, we all know how far we still have to go. So to get the tone right where we're happy and celebrating progress, but we still have the urgency and the anger at the discrimination that still exists, it's not an easy thing. Um, you know, in some ways it's bipolar. You know, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. We have to be happy and angry at the same time. Um, yeah, but, I know. But, you know, I mean, uh, the bottom line, Joyce, I believe, is 
the key influencers in the lives of people with disabilities often tell us not to be out at work, not to be out at school, not to let people know about our disability. And somehow the idea is that we need to prove ourselves and then maybe we can let people know, but even then it's dangerous. I was just on a panel with Commissioner Feldblum from the EEOC who, you know, we were talking about the value of being out at work. Joyce, you may have seen I did a blog on that topic for disability.gov. And, you know, Joyce was saying, you know, and, you know, Joyce is out as a person with anxiety disorder. I'm not Joyce. Hi was saying that um, she... Uh, you know, she can afford to be out as a commissioner of the EEOC because what are people going to do to her? But she was saying that it's probably not a good idea to be out as a young person with a non-apparent disability because, you know, you're more vulnerable and you might get discriminated against. And I just disagreed with her. I said, you know, of course it's helpful to us when CEOs come out, but it's also helpful to us when brand-new employees come out. I think anybody coming out helps to change the climate and if, if the only people who are coming out are the people who are at the top, I, I don't think we're going to make progress as quickly. Right. What I, you know, here's what I tell people. When you are on the interview, no, there is no reason that you have to talk about your disability. Why? Because you're not being interviewed for your disability. That's why there's an ADA. I mean, that's why people are not allowed to say, do you have a disability? But when, once you have employment, you know, you're like an ambassador. And the only way you're going to change the work face of America is when people with disabilities are there. And the only way you're going to be there is if you know they're there. So, you know, I tell the people I find employment for, uh, you know, that you are an ambassador. And I think the key thing is to not be ashamed and to realize it's just part of your identity. And that's why I get very upset when parents tell children with, disability, with epilepsy, excuse me, don't tell anyone. Yeah. When well, you say Joyce, to someone, I think the other don't thing tell anyone, what are you saying? Is the people that you're advising not to come out in their job interview or dwell on their disabilities in their job interview are people who you're working with to get jobs that have nothing to do with disability. I mean, you're helping people get jobs all over the government, all over the private sector, in finance, in HR, in other professional areas. But I do think when you're interviewing for a job for an organization that has a mission that's connected to disability, it can be in your interest to talk about your disability because it, it, it's directly connected to the mission of the organization. You, you mean when you interview with any company? What do you mean? No, I mean when you interview with my organization, the Association oh, yes, of University right. Centers on Disabilities, right. or with you know AAPD or Easter right. Seals or the Epilepsy Foundation well, or any, actually, any disability cannot, organization. Well, anyone that we recruit, that's what we're doing. We're saying, do you have a disability? Yeah. That's what we do. What I mean what is, I, I'm not going saying, to send, Joyce, I'm not there is send value someone. In, in talking about your disability experience when you're interviewing for a job with a disability organization. Right. And in my experience, some people aren't comfortable talking about their disabilities, even in that context. Yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah, that did happen to me. Um, this one thing that happened only happened one time, but I did find uh, employment 
for someone. She came through our company because she said, I know you help people with disabilities. Uh, of course, when we got her, her position, of course, the company would know she had a disability because we referred her, but of course, that doesn't mean you're going to, you know, that you're required to talk about your disability if you do not want to. Well, what happened is she made one job change, um, but then she got a job back at that first company. It was a different job, but she got a new job. After that, she called our office and said, you know how much I love Joyce, but please don't send me any calendars. Um, don't invite me to any events because I want to just forget about that part of me. But, and- Thank you. Thank goodness that only happened to me one time, but I I was shocked, I have to tell you. Well, and it's interesting. Sometimes there's a cultural context for things like that. When when I was at AAPD, um, one of my favorite things that we did was our our internship program where we had college students with disabilities who would self-identify in their application, and then we would select people and help place them on the Hill and then in the executive branch of the federal government and then ultimately in the nonprofit world. But um, I remember we had one gentleman um, who had schizophrenia and who did not want anybody to know that he was an AAPD intern. And I remember talking to him about it because I wanted to make sure he understood we were a disability organization. And from our perspective, it was good for people to know that you were part of our internship program and that you had a disability. And then, you know, you could decide how much you want to dwell on the details of your disability. But I remember him saying to me, he was he was South Asian, uh, his family was from India originally, and I remember him saying to me that if it were to become known back in his home country that he had schizophrenia, that it would be very difficult for his sisters to marry. So oh just think goodness. about the, the stigma, you know, not just affecting the individual, but affecting the whole family. Wow. You know, Andy, actually, something I did want to ask you uh, before I ask you about 503, since we're talking about employment, is, you know, a lot of companies are getting very strange about hiring people with mental health issues. They, They already, obviously, there was always a stigma, as there is with epilepsy and other disabilities. However... All of this violence that has occurred, it's, you know, every single time you then have to hear the part, and of course they had a mental health issue. And that is having a very, very negative impact for people with uh, mental health issues. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the most insidious stereotypes that exists in the disability world is the idea that if you have a mental health diagnosis like depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety disorder or any schizophrenia, you know, any significant mental health issue, people assume that you're dangerous, you know. And Mm -hmm. and part of the reason people assume that is most people get their information about mental illness from the media, and Mm -hmm. we are barraged with media images of people with mental illness being dangerous. And when somebody does something horrible... Oftentimes, the the media storyline is, well, they did that because they were bipolar or they did that Uh because they were having mental health treatment, as if that explains the action. And Uh and the reality is that people with mental health diagnoses are no more likely to commit violent crimes 
than anybody else, they're much more likely to be victims of violence than they are to commit acts of violence. Um, but, you know, most people don't know that. So, you know, I, I just would point to one example of how this can play out in a very discriminatory way. I don't know, Joyce, if you remember the, the shootings at Virginia Tech, you know, very high yes. profile. Yes, I do. Uh, you know, young man who, who killed a bunch of people at Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. You know, the coverage of that case really focused on his mental illness. And a lot of colleges in reaction to Virginia Tech and the follow-up um, are now forcing students that have significant mental health conditions, which, by the way, typically kick in while you're in college. I mean, that's the data, that's the age of onset for a lot of conditions. So as people are getting their diagnosis, the college is saying, okay, we're not, we're not confident that you can take care of yourself as a person with this diagnosis, so we're going to send you home to deal with your mental illness, and then when you're stable and when you're better, you can come back. And just think about that. You know, if you, if you just got a diagnosis of depression or bipolar disorder and now you're getting sent home packing, that's going to isolate you from your friends. It's going to put you in this very kind of stigmatized relationship when you get back home. Um, and probably for most people, the best thing you can do is help them go back to their friends, get the natural supports that they could get in the college environment, and, you know, stay on the conveyor belt and graduate instead of dropping off the conveyor belt and maybe never getting back on. Yeah, that's horrible. I mean, that, that is horrible, that story you just told. And I know that it, I know it's having an impact. And I always say to people, you know, why is it there are all these terrible things that have happened? Killings, killing wife, killing husband, killing children, all these things that happened, but it's funny how this one thing has to be added. Oh, but that was a mental health person. Well, sorry, but, you know, there are people that are terrible people and kill people, and it has nothing to do with mental health issue, but I just wish that everyone in the media would become really more aware of this because there Andy just gave a terrible example, but a real example of of what the consequences of that could be. And you know, Andy, when you were talking, for example, about what Hi said, Hi Felbloom, about uh, disclosing, not disclosing, Section 503, I wanted to ask you two things, actually. One is what impact do you think it will have? And then I wanted you to comment on number two, which is you, I'm sure, remember very well. You and I were at an event. You were uh, speaking up front. It was about uh, 503, only a couple years ago. And companies were in the room, about 30 or 40 people. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the other people on the panel, I believe, was... Is her name Sharon? She works with High. Yeah, I think so, I remember yeah, the event. Sharon, yeah. Sharon, uh, yes, yes. Masling, who works for right. High. Yeah, right. Anyway, they were saying. Well, I, some of them said, "I don't think we will have to worry about the seven percent aspirational goal, as we know many people will self-identify." Well, you cannot believe how shocked many federal contractors are 
that now have called me in and said, we don't understand it. We did this huge survey for self-identifying and out of billion, you know, out of uh, X amount of millions of employees, maybe only 400 self-identified. What, well, are, aren't you shocked? Well, no, I was never shocked, nor did I think it was going to happen. Sadly, this goes back to what we were talking about, uh, the, what Hi was referring to probably leads on to this, which is employees are afraid to disclose because they'll be treated differently. So two questions. Number one is what impact do you think 503 will have? And number two, what do you think it will take for that to change, that people will self-identify? Yeah, well, first, um, I really want to commend Patricia Shu, and I know you've had her on your show multiple times, but you know, her leadership at the head of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs to get a strong new regulation governing affirmative action for federal contractors was truly exemplary leadership. And as you mentioned, Joyce, under this new regulation, even though 503 has been on the books since the 1970s, now for the first time, federal contractors are required to have a goal that 7% of their workforce in all job categories will be people with disabilities. And Joyce, I know you're seeing the impact of this rule because federal contractors are taking you know, the, their obligations to try to build pipelines of talent for people with disabilities much more seriously than they have historically. Um, I think that 503, you know, if we look forward, Joyce, to when we're celebrating, uh, you know, the 10th anniversary of the 503 rule, I think we're going to look back and say that was the thing that created the tipping point for disability employment. I, I really mm-hmm. believe that the 503 rule is going to have a ripple effect across employers, and employers are not going to be able to do what they've done you know, for the 25 years since the ADA, which is brag about their elevators and brag about their accessible parking. And then when you ask them how many people with disabilities actually work here, and they say, oh, I don't know because I don't ask that question. Well, they can't say that anymore. So I think mm-hmm. 503 is huge. Uh, I think we're going to have some challenges around implementation. You know, employers are not embracing it. But I think all those issues will work themselves out. And, you know, the question of how do we get employees to come out at work and be open about their disabilities so that the federal contractors can count them, um, you know, to me it's about building trust with your workforce. You know, if the employees with disabilities believe that it's in their interest to be open about their disabilities at work, then they will be. If they believe that they're going to experience discrimination, they're going to have trouble getting promotions, they might get fired if they come out with their disabilities, then they're not going to come out. And I think for federal contractors, um, they need to understand that this is a process and it's going to take time. You don't build that kind of trust with an employee with a disability overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree 100%. Um, Andy, I, I have read different blogs that you have written, and one um, that really impacted me, and it's the article you were talking about, actually, is you made a comment that your experience with disability made you a better attorney advisor at EEOC, and you think of your disability as a positive differentiator. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by this? 
Sure, and it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier, Joyce. I have made a choice as a as a person with a disability to devote my career to disability civil rights and disability policy. So every organization that I've worked for since the federal judge that I clerked for at the beginning of my legal career has been in one way or another a disability organization. So, um, you know, from my perspective, me being a lawyer with bipolar disorder as an attorney advisor to Commissioner Paul Miller meant that, A, he could tell people that he he was walking the walk, that he actually hired people with psychiatric disabilities, so he wasn't just telling employers not to discriminate, but in his own personal office, he was not discriminating against a disability that had a lot of stigma associated with it. I traveled around Washington and connected with people with disabilities in other agencies, and they felt connected to me because they knew I was open about my disability. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was part of my relationship with Justin Dart. He wrote me those handwritten notes, not just because I was a lawyer who worked at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, but because I was a lawyer with a disability. He felt connected to me. He wanted to cultivate me. He saw me as a, an important rising star in the community. So, And I think the EEOC benefited from that. Um, I had deep knowledge of the disability community in part because I was welcomed as a member of the community, and that benefited every organization that I worked for, including Senator Harkin. So um, that's what I meant by saying it was a positive differentiator. Right, and, and, and thank you that you've done that because just think of all the young people, uh, Andy, that you have helped that live with a psychiatric disability, think, I'm sure you have saved lives just by, uh, you know, you speaking up and showing people what can be accomplished and being such a great role model. Um, I, I, just, I just think you have had an enormous impact. Well, and I think, Joyce, I know you know this because you've done so much work in the cross-disability world with AAPD and on the President's Committee and in other roles that you've had. But to me, what's exciting is mentoring young people with all different types of disabilities and being mentored by people like Tony Coelho and you and others who don't have psychiatric disabilities, but who are nonetheless very important mentors for me. So I, I do, I mean, I, I appreciate what you said, and I think certainly being out with my condition has has helped other people be out, and they've told me it's made a difference for them. But I really feel like part of our job as disability advocates is not just staying in our lane of our own condition, but really trying to be a mentor and a, and a force for good and for change for the whole community. The other thing that I've found, and, you know, Justin Dart's a good example of this, Justin was known for having polio, but he also had depression. You know, and he was very open to me about his depression and told me that he thought it was more debilitating than any other condition that he had. So part of the value of being out with, with my condition is I do meet a lot of people that have other disabilities that are a lot more obvious who also tell me that they experience depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, I agree with you about that because um, it's so funny. We have a little joke at my company that, you know, people with disabilities, whether they have epilepsy, blind, deaf, use a wheelchair, often don't know about the other person's disability. And, you know, the example we give is that Pam, who is deaf, was driving Jim home, 
who is blind and had Lee in the back seat, who has cerebral palsy. So to talk to uh, Jim, Lee in the back was being the interpreter for Pam to what Jim was saying. And finally, Jim, she said, Jim, I'm sorry. I don't know where you live. And Jim says, Pam, get on the phone and call someone. And she said, Jim, I'm deaf, remember? <laughs> and, and that is still a joke in our office that cross-disability, we don't even sometimes think about other disabilities and what people uh, go through. So I, I think it's important uh, to work with all groups uh, across the board. Uh, and I but think, anyway, Joyce, that I'm to sorry. me was one of the wonderful things about the AAPD, and it continues to be one of the wonderful things about the AAPD internship program. One of those, that one of the things that those young people learn over the course of the summer is how to be advocates for each other. You know, and what are mm-hmm. what are the accessibility issues for somebody you know who's who uh, is autistic? What are the accessibility issues for somebody that has a chemical sensitivity? You know, whatever it is. They learn about it from each other, and then they can advocate for each other. Right. Yeah, that is a wonderful thing. So, Andy, um, tell us and our listeners about AUCD. Sure. So, AUCD, and our website is just AUCD.org. We're a national organization that represents the university centers in every state and territory, who do research and leadership development and training and model program design um, that really is about improving the quality of life of children and adults with disabilities. And our network kind of has a history of having a strong focus on children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and we have core funding in that area, um, and it's authorized under the Developmental Disabilities Act and the Combating Autism Act, which is now called the Autism Cares legislation. Um, but, uh, you know, over time, our network has gotten more and more and more interested in a broader range of disability issues, including, you know, folks that have intellectual disabilities and a mental illness or intellectual and disability and a hearing loss. But also, you know, folks that don't have an intellectual disability, our network has gotten, you know, interested in the broader disability community. So, if you add the budget of all of my centers together, Joyce, it's a $650 million network. And one way to think about it is it's a $650 million research and development and leadership development arm for the disability field. And for me, you know, having been in the field now for over two decades, I'm really enjoying traveling around getting to know this network. You know, we have, we have a leadership education and neurodevelopmental disabilities program funded by the Maternal and Child Health Bureau in Pittsburgh. And you you and I went out to dinner with the director of that program. I think you got a feel, you know, he's working with early career professionals across multiple disciplines, teaching them how to be leaders, how to work with interdisciplinary teams, how to work with families in a way that's family-centered and culturally competent, and how to work with policymakers to try to have an impact on behalf of children and families. And to me, that's just a great movement-building program. We have 3,000 trainees a year that we're training, and we're helping to cultivate them as leaders in the disability field. So that part is really exciting to me. Oh, how wonderful. That is so wonderful. And once again, Andy, your website? 
It's just AUCD.org. So again, AUCD stands for the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. We also have a Twitter feed that's AUCD News. And then I have a personal Twitter, which is at Andy AUCD. Yeah, and I would encourage you to go to a fabulous website, really great website, and uh, a lot of great information, these blogs I, that we were talking about, just so much good information there. So I would encourage everyone, AUCD.org. Well, Andy... And, and Joyce, uh, let me just say yeah. one thing on the homepage of the website for your listeners who are trying to find out, okay, where's the university center in my state? If you look at the upper left-hand corner of the website, there's a map of the country, and if you click on USED, which stands for University Centers for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, you'll see the USED in your state, and we have at least one USED in every state and territory. And then you can click on that and see a list of all their staff and how to reach them and what they do. So there's a lot of information that you can get that's specific to your state. Okay, and where is that again, Andy? It's just on the home page of the website, so it's AUCD.org, and then there's a map on the upper left-hand corner. Okay, that's good. Good information. Uh, well, Andy, again, here we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the ADA. Uh, my question is, what are you thinking for the next 25 years? What do you think that will bring? Well, you know, Joyce, I, I think we've all been thinking a lot about that, and I don't know about you, but I feel like the first 25 years went by very quickly. <laughs> so I'm guessing yeah. the next 25 years will go by even faster. But I'm, as I think you are, I'm inspired by this new generation of young people who've grown up since the passage of the ADA. I think they have very high expectations for themselves. Senator Harkin and others refer to them as the ADA generation. I'm sure you heard Allie Cannington last night at the Nickel Conference kind of give her a call to action on behalf of that generation, which is the theme of the whole National Council on Independent Living Conference this year. Um, so I think, you know, this generation is going to come of age. They're going to they're going to have, you know, the Disability Matters radio show. They're going to be running AUCD. They're going to be running AAPD. They're going to be the council for the Senate Help Committee. Um, and they're going to have great jobs that have nothing to do with disability, but they're still going to have some disability pride and disability cultural identity as they do those jobs. So, I'm, you know, I'm looking for the forward to the day when we have people with disabilities integrated on every diversity issue. So if people are focused on diversity in Silicon Valley, disability will be part of the conversation. If they're focused on disability on the boards of Fortune 100 companies, disability will be part of the conversation. If they're trying to get candidates to run for office, uh, disability will be part of the conversation. If we're, if we're appointing judges to the federal bench and we want diverse uh, slate of judges, disability will be part of the conversation. So to me, if, if everything I just said is true 25 years from now, then we've really taken it to another level. Because as you know well, Joyce, we are not part of many diversity conversations right now. No, we are not. I mean, I can't believe it when you go to corporations and it's <coughs> separate. You know, many companies, disability is still separate, which is hard to believe, but it is. And, you know, all you have to do is hear people speak when they talk about minority groups and notice that disability isn't included frequently. So I... Although I, I, I do want to give the President, President Obama credit 
that he has consistently included people with disabilities when he talks about kind of equality of opportunity, and he does it in a very eloquent way. And I don't know, Joyce, if you heard the speech that he gave on the 50th anniversary of crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge down mm-hmm. in Selma. But I, I cried when he mentioned people with disabilities in that speech because, again, mm-hmm. that's the kind of leadership that we're looking for. When you're talking about civil rights and human rights and social justice, people with disabilities are naturally part of the fabric. And to have you know the first black president of the United States go to Selma, give this wonderful, eloquent speech, and talk about what it meant, what crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge meant for people with disabilities, I mean, to me, that's like nirvana. Oh, when he has done that, I'm not kidding you. I jump up and anyone who's with me jumps up and cheers. And, you know, someday we'll look back on that and say, Andy, remember you told me when the president mentioned included disabilities, you cried. And uh, and me, I jumped up in the air. Obviously, if he talks about women or minorities, you don't have that reaction. Why? Because we have not been included. So, uh, yes, I did notice that, and I have noticed that, and I am so very appreciative that he does that. Well, Andy, are there any other plans you have this week celebrating the ADA? Well, as you know, Joyce, um, the celebration is a full two-week celebration, so we're, we're a little bit over halfway um, I'm looking forward to coming back to the National Council on Independent Living Conference multiple times this week, including a panel presentation on the kind of the future of long-term services and supports that Merrill Friedman has organized. Um, and uh, there's going to be a corporate uh, disability summit that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is having on Friday that I'm looking forward to attending. There's a reception on Thursday night for the Disability Equality Index that the U.S. Business Leadership Network and AAPD have put together. Um, and there's a diversity reception at the Nickel Conference. I mean, there's just it's just one thing after another, but it's great. And again, the whole thing, all two weeks to me, is like a family reunion. But I really do think we couldn't have kicked it off in a better way than the reception with the president last Monday. I agree with you. And I also want to give uh, kudos to Secretary of Labor Tom Perez, uh, who received the Tony Coelho Award that, you know, when you were talking about Pat Shue, um, he, has, he was so behind 503 and has really been committed uh, to the disability community. Uh, and that was another highlight for me. But, of course, the White House is just, it was just an unbelievable event. So I agree with you. Well, yeah, Andy, I, mean, I, think I appreciate, Joyce, you mentioning Secretary Perez. What's been interesting to me this week is how many agency heads have hosted events. I mean, it wasn't just Secretary Perez who's mm-hmm. been at multiple events, including the wonderful session that he hosted with Senator Harkin and Governor Markell on, on the Tuesday after the White House event. But you know, we've had the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Chairman Wheeler, came to the White House event. We've had the Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, on Friday hosted his own event, which I had the opportunity to participate in, which was a wonderful event. The Secretary of Transportation is hosting an event tomorrow. The the press conference that I just came from included the chairperson of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Jenny Yang. 
So we've had, and you know, I mean, we've had multiple agency heads, the National Council on Disability, of course, Access Board, you name it. Um, but to have kind of these ca- these cabinet secretaries take time to celebrate this anniversary and to recognize that it's part of their job as the head of the agency to celebrate these milestones with the community, I think it sends a great message that disability issues are important to lots of agencies, not just the Department of Labor, but, you know, across the federal government. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, um, I they had a big celebration at HUD that I spoke at, and there are a few other agency events this week I'll be speaking at, but they on their own have been having big celebrations, and as you said, that is so awesome that, in fact, they are just doing all of this you know, on their own. That, that is fabulous. So, Andy, I know that, wow, when I have you on the show, you're so interesting. Look how fast this time goes. Unbelievable. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, over this past year now, that you've been at AUCD, and just in general, uh, what, what have you felt was your greatest accomplishment? Well, you know, I, I think for me at AUCD, my and I'm, I'm now start, at the end of September, it will be two years for me. I can't believe that it's been that long. But I would say my greatest accomplishment at AUCD has been getting out of Washington and really connecting with this network and getting to know this network. You know, I told you it's a $650 million network. If you think about it in terms of FTEs, we probably have 6,000 FTEs in our network. So that wow. is a lot of people to get to know. And uh, out of our 67 university centers for excellence, I have visited 39. Out of our 43 leadership education and neurodevelopmental disabilities programs, I visited um, about 35. Um, so for me, you know, I've, I've been to Hawaii, I've been to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and lots of states in between. Um, and I'm just inspired by this network. I think they're intrigued by my cross-disability background, my policy background, my being open as a lawyer with bipolar disorder. My network is mostly PhDs and MDs. Um, and so I feel like I'm bringing my AAPD and Harkin ecosystem and merging it with this, this you know, intellectual and developmental disability higher education ecosystem and it's producing beautiful collaboration on the ground. So um, my biggest accomplishment really has been getting out of Washington, connecting with my network, and connecting them with the broader disability community to the extent that they didn't already have those connections. And the visit in Pittsburgh that you and I participated in was a good example. I think you knew Bob, and he kind of knew you, but we had a chance to break bread together and get to know each other better, and hopefully that will lead to other collaborations down the road. That's right. Yes, that's right. That that was wonderful. And there are so many centers that people don't know exist and that I did not realize so much was being done right here in Pittsburgh. So, uh, you know, you are right about that, and I, I just think that's wonderful how you're going to meet all of them, and I know I'm sure that means a lot to them. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for being on the show. I just want to... Thank you for how much you've done for people with disabilities, for how kind you are, and certainly what a good friend you've been to all of us. Uh, We do really thank you for your great leadership. Well, thank you, Joyce. You know the feeling is mutual. 
Um, a lot of what I did at APD, I did alongside of you as a board member and ultimately the chair of the board. So we should both feel good about what APD has done. And I know you guys are in the process of hiring a new leader, and I'm really excited that you're going to find somebody great and the organization is just going to keep growing and thriving. Yes, me too. So, Andy, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, we talked about Justin Dart, so I'd like to kind of go back to his style of leadership. One of the things that Cornell West says that I really like is he says, in order to lead people, you have to love people. In order to save people, you have to serve people. So I think all of us as leaders in the disability field need to remember that love and service is at the core of quality leadership. Oh, that is so true. Amen to that, Andy. I agree with you about that. Well, um, and I end every show with a quote. And today, since we're talking about the ADA and our fight for freedom, it has to be just recently at an event I was at, the Congressman Steny Hoyer said, remember, civil rights is the guts of the ADA. And so it is. Happy ADA 25. Thank you, Andy, for being with us. And I look forward to talking to you all next week on Disability Matters. This is Joyce Bender, Disability Matters, voiceamerica.com. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 